Hello and welcome to Battleground 44. This week we're going to be talking about a momentous but overlooked event that took place 80 years ago this week. On the 27th of January 1944, Soviet forces finally drove the last German units from around Leningrad, lifting a siege that had lasted 872 days. It began shortly after Hitler launched Operation Barbarossa, the invasion of Russia, in June 1941. The Germans expected the city to fall within a few months. Thereafter, it was to be razed to the ground and all the inhabitants murdered or expelled. The martyrdom of what was formerly, and now is again, St. Petersburg, has been described by my guest today as the deadliest blockade of a city in human history. About three quarters of a million of its inhabitants died, mostly of starvation. That's four times as many as in the nuclear bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki combined. The story is rich in tales of heroism and fortitude on the part of the inhabitants, but it has a darker side too, as the struggle for survival led people to unthinkable acts. The defence by the Soviet authorities was marked by some strokes of inspiration, along with many instances of stupidity and disregard for human life. All in all, the siege of Leningrad was one of the great events of the Second World War, and its end marked another great failure of the German campaign in the East. Well, with me here today to talk about all this is Anna Reid, author of Leningrad, Tragedy of a City Under Siege, which came out in 2011 to great acclaim. It's one of several books she's written on Eastern European history, and the latest, A Nasty Little War, The West's Fight to Reverse the Russian Revolution, has just appeared. Anna, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a great privilege to have you on. First of all, can I start off by asking you why it is that everybody knows about the siege of Stalingrad, but people are often remarkably ignorant about the siege of Leningrad? I th- yes, I came across that. I remember when I was researching this book, people, you know, fr- friends, sort of acquaintances, and sort of, you know, the bloke sitting next to me at a dinner party or whatever would often say, oh, but I haven't, haven't I just read a book about that by Anthony Beaver? <laughs> and I would have to say, no, <laughs> Leningrad, different city, <laughs> different, different siege. So Stalingrad was where the Germans began to lose. It's where the German armies were pushed back. It was the start of their great retreat, the winter of 42-43. But Leningrad, a bit over a year earlier, is, I would argue, where it became inevitable that the Germans would lose. It's where the German armies were first stopped by the Red Army. It was their, it was their first big failure after the initial invasion in June of forty one. Um, it was the first city which they failed to take. They failed to achieve their goal. The other reason why Leningrad is has been less written about than Stalingrad is that for military historians, uh, it's much less dramatic. So you get very fierce fighting through the middle of September 1941. And this is when the great general Zhukov, Stalin, has sent him up to Leningrad to take over its defence. And he manages to rally the defence and he stops the Germans at the gates. You know, the German lines are as far from the centre of Leningrad as Richmond is from Piccadilly. And they're really in the in the outskirts, but they don't get any further, um, partly because tanks are diverted down to Moscow to join in the assault on Moscow. So from then on, the, the lines are more, it's more or less static. So you get this sort of the static trench warfare the lines are set and it's shelling back and forth with very, very little movement. So the siege ring closes. And if you think about the geography of Leningrad, you've got 
the Baltic, the Gulf of Finland to its west. You've got the river Neva flowing through it out of Lake Ladoga, this vast lake, almost an inland sea, to its east. Round to the south, you've got the Wehrmacht. And round to the north, you've got the Finns. You've got the Finnish army. Finland is in alliance with Germany, of course. And that's the picture. The lines don't move much then until January of 43. Um, it's pretty static. You know, it congeals into static trench warfare. So for the military historian, that's not very exciting. You know, it's not like further south, where you've got these amazing great sort of, you know, armies sweeping back and forth across the plains. Um, the other reason I think that Leningrad is less well known is that for the Soviets, it was a very, I mean, the city was saved, it didn't fall, but it was a very equivocal victory in that, as you've just explained, about three quarters of a million civilians died and unnecessarily because they could and should have been evacuated beforehand. Um, they didn't because the whole system was sort of in denial about the possibility of a siege, the possibility of the Germans getting that far. So Leningrad, it, you know, it, it was memorialised. There's a great big memorial complex where one of the big great ma you know mass graves are inside the city, but it's not really a victory for the Soviet Union. It's a sort of site of tragedy for the Soviet Union. And at, at the time, there was a complete news blackout on the fact that people were dying of hunger. Not only Russia's allies didn't know this was happening, but Russians outside Leningrad, Muscovites and so on, didn't know it was happening. So there was a sort of, the whole thing was sort of abstracted after the war into this very sort of fuzzy tale of heroism. And, you know, the real, the real memoirs were all suppressed. So it became this very sort of abstract tragedy about not much very specific was spoken, and both for political reasons and for personal reasons, because it's very painful for survivors to talk about it. And that sort of that carried over into the West. We didn't look at it. And of course, the archives were closed um, until, until the 90s. Well, we'll talk about that uh, memorialization aspect of it a bit later on. But let's start at the beginning. Um, so as you say, sort of massive unpreparedness on the, on the part of the Soviets, uh, complete inability in the Kremlin uh, to, to grasp what's actually happening, even though there's lots of intelligence pouring in that the Germans are about to invade. But the consequence for the people of Leningrad is that that first winter was the worst winter of the siege, wasn't it? Tell us something about the deprivation, the starvation, and the you know, relentless sort of shelling and air attacks that the population had to endure. There's a phrase people use about it, use about this descent, and it's called falling down the funnel. It's this feeling of spiralling downwards faster and faster. So the, the siege ring closes on September the 8th. You've got about 2.8 million within the siege ring, um, civilians within the siege ring. You've got wildly insufficient amount of food, partly because Zhdanov, the party leader in the city, actually, you know, he, he was afraid. I mean, all the way up and down the system, people were afraid to make preparations in the run up, you know, while the siege ring was, while the Germans were approaching, because they were afraid of being accused of defeatism. You have to remember the context of the purges only a few years previously. Um, so everybody pretends everything's all right. You know, Zhdanov reports to Moscow that everything's in hand, everything's under control. His own deputies do the same to him, and they actually compete the sort of district party heads in the city to keep their people within the city to to do everything they do everything they can 
not to let civilians leave, because this is a demonstration of loyalty, of trust in the system, of patriotism, and so on. So you've got this unnecessarily huge number of civilians within the siege ring. And on the day the siege ring closes, September the 8th, you also get the first air raid. And the food warehouses, the bad IF warehouses are hit and go up in flames. And there's this enormous plume of black smoke um, that rises above the city, which everybody sees. And there's this smell of burning sugar spreads throughout the city as what the food there is in the city goes up in flames. And thereafter, hunger begins to bite very fast. Initially, well, people do their best to lay in food stocks and they, they barter. Uh, they go out to the villages within the siege ring, but sort of on the city outskirts and barter with the peasants for potatoes and so on. They bring it home. Um, the older people who remember the starvation of the Civil War know to dry bread, just cut bread in slices and dry it um, on the stove where it'll, and then sort of hang it up out of the reach of mice. And that will keep indefinitely. The utilities start to fail one by one. The public transport stops. You know, electricity goes, sewerage goes, the pipes all freeze and people resort to the technologies of the village. So you need the three things you need are a pot-bellied stove um, called a bourgeek or a handmade thing. Um, and it has a stovepipe going out of your window and you sort of pop up, board up or stuff the cracks with cushions or something so the cold air doesn't get in. You need a sled for going and collecting scrounged wood, scrounged from bomb sites or sort of pulled up fences. And you need a koptilka, which is a little homemade lamp, the little homemade kerosene lamp, which it means a smoker. because They're very black and smoky. Everybody's the interior, everybody's flats got completely black. Faces and hands all got turned black with the smoke. And people's lives shrink to this sort of iron triangle of flat bread shop where you queue for hours and hours from the small hours in freezing temperatures come sort of December on. Um, you know, if minus 10, minus 20, and water source, uh, which initially will be a standpipe, and when that freezes up a hole, in, a hole in the ice in one of the canals. And you get corpses appearing on the streets from sort of late November onwards, people pulling corpses along on their sleds to the cemeteries for burial. Uh, and of course, the normal burial services completely break down and you get these very horrible mass burials and corpses piling up just in sort of sheds and on the ground. And you get caught the corpses of people who've collapsed as they were walking along on the street and they're simply left there where they've fallen on the pavements. And they are, and you get diarists recording how they're gradually stripped of their clothing. So you'll get somebody saying, saw a corpse today, then the next day they'll say, his boots have gone. The next day they'll say, his coat's gone. The next day they'll say, or a few, few weeks later, they'll say people have been cutting at his legs for flesh. Let's talk a little bit about that. I know that you say that by no means all Leningraders were involved in this grisly, uh, let's face it, cannibalism. Um, but it was definitely a thing. Um, and um, some of the stories are really almost unbelievable in their grimness. I'm thinking of the one about the soldiers defending outside the city, who when the soup carriers come up, the soup carriers are, are, are sometimes murdered by the soldiers, the soup stolen, then the bodies buried in the stove, the soldiers then come back and hack bits off them to eat. Now, I think none of us are going to condemn this because in an extremist, you know, people do what they have to do. But it is a particularly grisly 
aspect uh, of the siege, isn't it? It is. So the worst months are January, February and March of 1942. So in each of those months, there are about 100,000 recorded deaths. And these are the months where people completely lose all emotions. Um, You know, what happens to you when you're starving is every sort of emotion goes except for obsession with food. And you can see the progression in the diaries clear as day. You know, everything falls away. You know, relationships fall away. Uh, interest in the outside world or anything else that's going on falls away. People just think about nothing but food. And afterwards, survivors describe themselves as being like having been like stones or like wolves or, or like robots. You know, and they can't believe the things they did or their state of mind at the time. But that is what happens to people in starvation. And it's it's extremely, I mean, it's absolutely horrible. You can trace through the diaries, you know, relationships breaking down and, you know, spouses turning on each other, parents turning on their children or vice versa, and these households falling apart. Not every household does, but when it doesn't, it's generally because they have slightly, very, very slightly better access to food because perhaps they're attached to some prestigious institution or they, they're a sort of, you know, before the revolution, there was a middle-class family. They've hung on to sort of trinkets, little bits of silver and things like that, which they're able to barter. So, you know, that's what happens to people in conditions of starvation. We're not heroes when we're starving, <laughs> which as the Soviet, Soviet myth would, would have it. And people do what they need to. Now, so the, the cannibalism thing, which, you know, is a sort of part of the whole sort of Leningrad sort of gory story. It was actually it was not universal by any means. So there are you can best follow the story in the police reports. So there were about two thousand arrests for cannibalism in the course of that mass death winter, which is not a large number considering the size of the city. And the reports and, and the people who are arrested are the most desperate. So they tend to be illiterate women you can you can gather from the ports that what they are is peasant women who came in who'd come to the city before the war to work okay so they're illiterate they're not from the city they don't have a support network within the city they live in the poor suburbs their husbands are either away at a factory somewhere no contact and within the city but unable to visit or with the army at the front and they've got children to try and feed and what they're doing they're not killing they're not that they're not the cannibals of legend you know these sort of evil murderers waiting to grab you if you go outside they're scavenging meat from corpses and actually the russian language distinguishes between these two things you can be a, a person eater or a corpse eater and they were what was what they were doing corpse eating so they were just scavenging protein and actually in the police reports you can see the, sim- the sort of officer's sympathy for these women coming through and they actually you can sort of read a plea for plea for mercy sort of between the lines and there was actually debate at the time sort of with the judicial system in the city about whether to just class them as mentally sort of incapable and you know let them off on those grounds and we we don't know the records don't show how you know what happened to them what kind of sentences they got but you then you get in the finally spring comes and the deaths start to fall, the death rate starts to fall. And that's partly because there are simply so many people have died, simply there are fewer mouths left to feed. But it's also because the authorities have managed to to establish something called the ice road across the ice of Lake Ladoga to to Leningrad's east. And that is begins to bring food in on lorries and, and starts taking people out as well. Now, in general, 
the authorities showed initially a high level of incompetence, also corruption, it must be said. If you were at the top of the of the bureaucratic tree, you weren't going hungry, were you? No, you certainly weren't. And there's one fantastic diary which came to light, actually, as I was writing the book. Of a, he's, he's a minor party official. And to start with, he's in the same boat as everyone else. He's, he's very junior and, and getting hungry, losing weight catastrophically. And then he lands a job in party headquarters in the Smolny. And there he's sort of amazed to discover they're eating three course meals. And later on, he gets sent off to a sort of sanatorium. It's in the sort of in the spring um, in the woods around Leningrad, an old sort of party sanatorium, which is still sort of operating. And there you have absolute feasts of, you know, would you like the turkey? Would you like the ham? You know, sort of cognac after dinner and so on. And people did, of course, know they could see that the, the high act you know, the population in general could see that the high ups were better fed. You could see that your boss's children hadn't starved. And you could also, you also deeply resented the corruption. And one of the, one of the stock figures of Siege Diaries is the plump, rosy bread shop girl who mans the local ration station. And she is selling bread on the side in exchange for furs. She's clad in jewellery. She's clad in a little squirrel jacket and all this. And these people are deeply resented. And one quite amusing thing is when the banyas open, when the public baths reopen in the spring, when life you know, things start getting going again, um, you know, people come together again. They've been isolated in their flats and they come together again for the first time um, in, in larger groups. And you, know, you strip off and everybody is skeletal, discoloured, ulcerated, except for this rosy, plump bread shop girl. And the, the rest of the women throw their throw things at her. They scold her. They bash her. They throw her out um, in disgust at the way she's profited from their suffering. Well, that was absolutely enthralling. Do join us in part two when Anna will be telling us how things started to improve in the spring of 1942. Welcome back. Well, as you said, Anna, uh, we're now in the spring of 1942, when a sort of lifeline is uh, opened up from the city to unoccupied Russia. And there's also kind of um, a change of mood, isn't there? You, you start getting the outside world, even though it knows nothing about the extent of the starvation that's afflicted the place, it starts to see it as a symbol of Russian determination, of, indeed of, of uh, you know, ordinary heroism, if you like, from the besieged inhabitants. Tell us a bit about that, and if you don't mind, um, about the Leningrad Symphony, which lots of people will remember, the Dmitry Shostakovich's symphony, which he, he composed while himself inside the city. So with the spring, you finally get, too late, a mass evacuation. And it starts off across the, the ice of Lake Ladoga in lorries. And then when, when the ice melts, it continues on barges. So the city empties out. It's dropped to a fraction of its normal population. It becomes very quiet. It becomes this sort of ghost city, grass growing through the cracks of the pavements and so on. Though, of course, the air raids and the shelling continue as well. So people spend their nights, you know, cowering from air raids, wondering when this whole ghastly thing will end, just like Ukrainians today. And you've got the institutions get going again. 
Um, also, of course, the NKVD gets going again. You get a new round of arrests. And that, in fact, has been going on all winter long. You know, you've got the NKVD, they've got their quotas to fulfil of numbers of people in each sort of category to be arrested. And you get the the midnight knocks and people being hauled off to die in prison a few years, a few days earlier than they would have done anyway at home of starvation. Um, so this, the sort of tempo of this increases with the summer. And as you said, you've also got a bit of institutions getting back to normal in the most, in a sort of small scale way. A lot of this sort of, you know, a lot of this stuff which talked about now is sort of, you know, wonderful of examples of, um, you know, the human spirit in time of crisis. And a lot of this stuff was performative. So, you know, the bosses would enforce it on their staff that make them lay on these shows or put in these little exhibitions or whatever in order that they themselves could earn brownie points. And the staff often deeply resented it. And in some cases, you know, it was the final straw that pushed them into death. I mean, there's one particularly awful instance of a, a ballet school director. This this is in the this is this is earlier on. This is in the winter. It's in the worst months of the season. She was a real party hack. She was much disliked. And she forces her teenage dance pupils to put on a show at which, you know, these sort of her party cronies sit and enjoy. And the lead, her lead boy dances, goes off stage, throws up, dies that night. You know, and that story is from one of her deputies. That's an absolutely first-hand account. And this this kind of thing went on quite a lot. You know, there, for example, there were snow clearing duties as well in, in the spring with the thaw to clear away vitally. I mean, it was, it was important to do because there was immense amounts of human faces frozen, you know, because toilets and everything had stopped working. So people were just um, relieving themselves in attics and in courtyards and so on. This needed to be cleared away so there wouldn't be a cholera outbreak. But often institutional bosses would, you know, pick on the most vulnerable people, people with no pull, to do those duties, do those shoveling duties, you know, with no concern for their, their state of health. And that's what would be the last thing which would kill them, you know, when as, as spring was coming. So, you know, one should not romanticise this stuff. Absolutely not. The Leningrad Symphony rehearsals and performance. Shostakovich was no longer in the city. He was one of the high profile figures who'd been, who had actually been evacuated before the siege ring closes. But he had started composing it while he was still in Leningrad. He'd, fi he'd finished it off in Samara, where he was. So Moscow decides to lay on a performance of the symphony as a PR thing to cement the alliance with Britain and America. They realise that it's a great story. So copies of the Copies of the score are flown into Leningrad. Musicians still in the city are rounded up, given extra rations. There are rehearsals and there's a performance in the summer. Now, this is the most wonderful story and, and it's broadcast worldwide and it's a sensation everywhere except for in Leningrad. <laughs> in Leningrad, the Leningrad diaries, the dozens and dozens and dozens of diaries I read, none of them mention it. None of them mention it. It's on radio the radio's working and it's it's broadcast obviously on local radio but nobody mentions it and the people in the audience we know were you know it was officialdom it wasn't music lovers it wasn't the ordinary population it, it was party officialdom and why it made so 
little impact in Leningrad at the time. I'm not sure. I mean, I think it wasn't really designed to, I don't think. It was designed as a PR thing for the outside world. And I think maybe Leningraders were too emotionally exhausted to take pleasure in take pleasure in music. You know, they were they were still processing what they'd been through. I mean, people suffered appalling survivor's guilt, for one thing. It wasn't right for Leningrad at that time. So with the spring of, of 42, Anna, you, you do see that some uh, signs of, of normal life coming back to the city. I was particularly struck by the appearance of women wearing lipstick again. This is something I remember actually from the siege of Sarajevo, where I was, I was uh, impressed by the fact that when going down to the market, you know, the women doing their shopping would put on lipstick and a kind of almost as an act of defiance and, and a, a, a kind of sign of hope that normality would return one day. Yeah, that's a lovely story. You do one of my diarists, she's a one, she's a 17-year-old, she's called Olga Gretchener. She's one of my favourite diarists. And she goes back to university. I think it's actually a bit later on, it's 44. But she's worried when she goes to university that she don't she won't look right. She manages to get hold of a new coat. Um, and she also a new boots as well. She she manages to she buys some skates. She's able to buy some skates, and she takes the the blades off them. And these are her new boots. And so she's doing her best. You know, after these these months and months of just bare survival, she's suddenly thinking about how I look and doing her best to look like a sort of normal sort of middle class person again. Wonderful. Now, what's the attitude of the Leningraders to the authorities? I mean, on one hand reading your marvellous book, you do get these expressions of real deep-felt patriotism, which seems somehow to trump the cynicism of the system, doesn't it? Um, At the same time, you have people who are actively wanting the Germans to arrive because it will hopefully sweep away Bolshevism and uh, restore them to something like their old life, which many of them, of course, would remember. The revolution wasn't that long ago. Can you say something about that? Um, When the initial invasion happens in June, you do have a sort of spectrum of reactions. So one of my daras, she lives in Sartre Selo, which is one of the palace towns, you know, the satellite palace towns outside the city. And she's from the south of Russia. She's from a Cossack family. So very, very badly hit, you know, by the famine of the early 30s and by the purges and and very religious family as well. You know, she deeply resents the closure of churches and so on. And she absolutely welcomes the Germans to start with. You know, she writes hurrah in her diary. And she and her husband, subsequent, when when Sarsko-Siela is occupied, they work as informers for the Germans to start with. And then what happens is that even though they're working as an informer, they're friendly with the Germans, they make friends with various officers, they're given little gifts of food and so on, it isn't enough. And they too end up starving because all the all the food stocks are all being sent to Germany, obviously, from occupied territories. And her her husband has to end up ends up having to have his gold teeth pulled out in order that they can sell them for food. So she, so even she, who's a very sort of natural pro-German, ends up turning against them. Um, and within the city, rumours about how brutally the German occupiers are, are treating people in occupied territory quickly start to come through. You know, people start hearing from friends of friends who've got 
you know, relative to the front and so on, about how appallingly prisoners of war are being treated and civilians are being treated by the Wehrmacht. So even amongst those who who initially welcomed the invasion as a sort of liberation from Stalinism, opinion quickly turns. And of course, then they're being shelled and bombed as well. But it's interesting, quite sort of the Leningrad intelligentsia, people like Vera Inba, the poet, she writes very interestingly about how she's she's been, you know, at odds with the system. She's been trying to sort of, you know, make her way, um, not get arrested, but also to sort of hold herself apart from the ideology, you know, for, for most of her adult for all her adult life. And suddenly with the German invasion, she feels she can identify wholly with her country and with the people in general. And this is almost a psychological relief to be at one with the system, to be at one with all her fellow Russians. And it's again, it's a sort of transient feeling, but there's a weird feeling of relief about it, of it, you know, the, the, the invasion simplifying things for her. And you know, by the end of the siege, by the time you've had the mass death, you've had these, you know, two and a half years of shelling and bombing. Of course, you know, everybody loathes, loathes Germany and victory, you know, the, the liberation of the city in January of 44, you know, the proper full liberation is is welcomed with hysterical joy by everybody. Let's talk about that because uh, this is a campaign where finally the Russians have actually got their act together. The Red, Red Army uh, is now properly equipped. It's actually achieved by December uh, 1943 massive superiority in tanks and artillery and in numbers and indeed in aviation. So we see the this three-pronged attack is launched and has pretty devastating and immediate good results, doesn't it? Tell us a bit about that. Well, the, the liberation of Leningrad, um, it sort of happens in two stages. So there's a partial lifting of the siege in January of 43. And they managed to push the Germans back from the southwestern shores of Lake Ladoga. They create a five-mile-wide land corridor attaching the city to unoccupied Russia to the east. And along this, they build a sort of temporary railway, and the first trainfuls of food start arriving in February of 1943. And this, of course, coincides with Paulus's surrender at Stalingrad. So it, it's a massive turning point for the war as a whole. And it's it's a massive morale boost for, for Leningraders. Um, and the final year of the siege through 43, it's, it's basically a waiting game. It's this sort of tense, strung out, exhausted waiting for the siege to be over finally. You know, some people actually start returning to the city. The st- city starts filling up again at that stage. And almost exactly a year later, January of 44, you've got, you know, these massive, you've got, you've got the big pushback. The Red Army launches these massive barrages all along the line and the Germans finally start to retreat. And, you know, and there's, as you know, of course, there's lot, you know, there's lots of fighting still to come. But for Leningrad, as that's really the end. Now, after the war, this is one of the features, isn't it, of Russian history or life in the 20th century is that one nightmare ends and then another one very quickly begins, doesn't it? So mm-hmm. the reaction of the authorities from Stalin downwards, you'd, you would imagine would be you know, relief, joy, pleasure, but not a bit of it. Um, Lenin, the memory of what's happened in Leningrad immediately becomes a political problem 
doesn't it? So Leningrad, the people who ran Leningrad, indeed the people of, of, of the city themselves become a sort of threat to the system, which affects the way that the event is then seen in post-war Soviet historiography. That's right. Um, you, you have to remember that the cult of the Second World War, of the Great Patriotic War, is later. It's after Stalin's death. It really gets going under Brezhnev. That's when all those memorials um, that you see, you know, those enormous great motherland statues and so on, um, you see in all the sort of Russian cities are built. For Stalin himself, okay, he's, you know, he's the great war leader, but you know, there, there are questions to be answered, obviously, like how come the Germans were allowed to get so far? How come Red Army losses were so huge? And then very sharply in Leningrad, how come three quarters of a million civilians died of starvation? And in Leningrad's case, you've got the added perception of Leningrad as as dangerously independent minded. You know, Leningraders feel that they saved themselves without Moscow's help, that, that you know, Moscow did nothing to help them and they they sat it out and repelled the Germans, you know, using their own resources, which isn't which isn't strictly true, but it's how Leningrad has felt. And Stalin, you know, it's 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 traditionally, you know, a, a suspiciously westernized place, Leningrad. You know, it's the great, you know, Peter the Great's window on the west and all that. And it's got, you know, it's it's chock a block with universities and museums and sort of academic institutions of different sorts, and a lot of the old, you know, pre-revolutionary intelligentsia. So it's always been a, you know, it's always been a sort of suspicious place as far as Stalin's concerned. And he and so after the war in 1949, he launches another purge, both of the old intelligentsia and of Leningrad's wartime leadership. Zhdanov actually dies of natural causes um, <laughs> in time. He's not uh, arrested. So yeah, for Leningrad, as sort of the the nightmare continues and truthful memories of the of the war are suppressed you know memoirs aren't published um and this very heroicized simplified sort of abstracted siege story where everybody stands shoulder to shoulder against the nazi invader you know trusting in the strong party leadership you know that that is built up and it was very interesting interviewing blockadniki survivors you talk to them and they would often tell you this sort of, they tell you the official narrative of the war where, where people die of starvation, but everybody's helping each other. The, you know, the, the party leadership is doing what it can, et cetera, et cetera. And then within that very sort of, sort of stereotypical narrative, you've got these, a few little incidents would stand out like sort of color from black and white, which was their own personal firsthand experiences. And it would be about, a particular air raid or about particular sort of standpipe, which miraculously didn't freeze, which was their lifeline through the winter. Um, and often they would, I mean, the people I interviewed were by definition survivors. You know, they, they were people who were happy to talk about this appalling period of their lives with, you know, to a stranger with a notebook. And what was really really amazing was the way they stressed the positive you know they would they would they would pick on and stress you know the few little examples of human kindness they'd encountered so they, they'd all been children during the siege children or teenagers you know so that the neighbor who shared food with them the soldier who turned up you know a, f a friend of their father or something at the door with a with a load of wood 
you know, the, all the, the sort of the, the distant relatives who took them in after the siege, after the bit they'd been orphaned or something like that. And that they'd stress the human kindnesses and not talk about the abundant human callousness they'd also encountered. And they disliked being called heroes. You know, they said we weren't the heroes. It was our parents who gave, you know, who saved us, who were the heroes. They died for us. They, you know, they allocated the food to us, you know, to me rather than to themselves. You know, and the best testament to the heroism there also was during the siege, you know, is the vast numbers of orphans that were left behind. Um, so in the spring of 42, you've got teams of Komsomolki, young girls, um, in their early 20s usually, doing the rounds of what were called dead flats, you know, flats where no life had been seen for for weeks. And they'd be removing the corpses and seeing if there are any survivors. And often the survivor you found was a preteen child. You know, the rationing system um, and sort of human physiology meant there was a very set pattern, a very set order in which people died, um, sort of old people and infants first, teenagers next, and then last, it was like preteens and women with working age men in the middle. Um, so often the last survivor was a preteen child, and it's these people I was interviewing. And for them, this concentration on the positive, the sort of blanking out of the grimmest aspects of the siege was a, was a psychological survival mechanism. You know, you, you re-remembered in order to make your memories livable with, in order to be able to carry on with your life. How was the story treated in the Putin era? So Putin has obviously weaponized the Second World War. One of his slogans, which you see spray painted you know, underneath the Z on sort of captured and wrecked Russian tanks when you visit Ukraine, is to Berlin. We did it before. We'll do it again. <laughs> <laughs> Na Berlin, um, with Berlin often misspelled. So, yeah, it's all, you know, it's always been a great source of pride for Russians. You know, it's the one sort of thing you can be proud of in the 20th century, basically. One thing that can be sort of really unequivocally, pretty much unequivocally celebrated, beating Hitler. And Putin has gone right back to it. And, you know, got, he's gone back to the Soviet version, basically, of, you know, sort of pure Russian heroism um, against the Nazi invader. One of the very sad things about Russia now is the fact that, you know, there was this wonderful blossoming of scholarship in the 90s and the early 2000s of, of terrific Russian scholarship, which I profited from, you know, all these diaries being, you know, edited and published in journals and so on. And that's all absolutely shriveled. It's gone. So university heads and heads of departments have all been replaced, you know, sacked and replaced by loyalists. All the best young academics have gone abroad. And the ones who remain are, are doing what they did in the Soviet times, which is studying completely boring, uncontroversial and unimportant topics. So, I mean, I can give you, I don't want to get them into trouble, but and I, I can give you examples from, from from friends of mine. You know, before they were looking at NKVD, you know, they were they were say mapping NKVD mass graves. Now they're talking about fish processing. <laughs> um, so it's it's extremely it's extremely depressing. So keeping their heads down and surviving, exactly. uh, you know, something that would be very familiar to people living in the Soviet era. Anna, thank you so much for reminding our listeners of this great and overlooked episode in the war and a, a big turning point. You can read all about it in Anna's book, Leningrad, Tragedy of a City Under Siege, as I mentioned at the top. And do look out for Anna's latest, A Nasty Little War, 
the West's fight to reverse the Russian Revolution. Anna, it was a pleasure talking to you. Oh, it was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for having me on. Okay, that's it from me. Do join us on Friday when Saul and I will be raking over events in Ukraine and Gaza. It's been an interesting week and answering listeners' questions. Goodbye. Goodbye.